This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Majority Report, A Best of the Left Activism Update, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Bugle, The Tom Hartman Program, and howdyland.com. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode may be found offensive by anyone resembling rich Uncle Pennybags from the Monopoly board game. In this country of ours, so proud, strong, and free, we did things and made things the whole world could see. But times, they have changed. Now we needn't get dirty, since Wall Street makes things so many find purdy. It's all different now, thanks to the banker's ascendance, inventing new paper contraptions for I finished this sentence. We'll package and bundle and wager and bet. What's good for the street will be good for you yet. And if things should go wrong and our faces turn pale, our most favorite part is we're too big to fail. Now cabbies and pickers will pick up the slack. Your taxes will bring the bankers right back to the top where we keep spreading good news of deregulation and our free market views. We know what we're doing. Just stop with the rules, with our proven track record, see? Regulations for fools. Now we're buying both sides to do a good bidding. That whole democracy thing, surely you're kidding. With money, our speech, the whole world's our play. To make sure we win, either way. This story in the New York Times today, apropos in particular, if you are uh, reading that Guy Lawson book that we uh, interviewed him about uh, last, for last Friday, The Octopus, that book is so fantastic because it, it actually, there's multiple stories wrapped up there. One is just the incredible corruption that exists on Wall Street. Two is just this amazing story of a con man getting conned. And three is also the implications of what it says about our elite. But um, one of those aspects of the book was this notion of front-running. Front-running is basically when a trader sees what's happening in the market and gets in and gets out or gets in, I guess, before information may be disseminated to the public. So this front-running can happen any number of ways. You could essentially do this by setting up a, a computer algorithm that so, shows uh, the trades that are being placed and just jump ahead. Get in there uh, quick with the knowledge that uh, there's these buy, uh, there's all these... Uh, trades that are about to be made. Another way, of course, is to get inside information 
which allows you to front run the market information that's not yet made public now of course there are regulations about this you're not supposed to get that information and as written in the New York Times they're supposed to be among Wall Street's most closely guarded secrets changes in research analysts views up or down of a company's prospects but some of the nation's biggest brokerage firms appear to be giving a handful of top hedge funds an early peek at these sentiments allowing them to trade on the information before other investors get the word this uh, was at play with the Facebook IPO because institutional traders knew that analysts were saying, ah, you know, this thing eh, may be a little bit overpriced. And we've just, uh, based upon the research and the information that we have now, we're, we're probably going to tell people that it's a little overpriced. <laughs> but uh, not in time, of course, for any of the uh, suckers to be aware of it. The signals come from questionnaires that analysts answer and submit electronically, either monthly or quarterly, to some of their firm's largest hedge funds clients. Chief among the questions posed to the analysts are about the uh, possible earnings surprises at companies they follow. So it's nothing so explicit like, hey, um, earnings are way down. I know you're expecting them to be high, but they're way down, so you might want to uh, short this company. It's more like, hey, cough twice if there's something going down here. <laughs> what analysts tell investors about the companies they follow and when is central to the concept of a level playing field on Wall Street. When disseminated, analyst downgrades and upgrades can make a stock sink or soar. Getting that information early can be very profitable for traders. It's also called cheating. As a result, regulatory rules require brokerage firms to restrict the information flow from research de departments to prevent the potential for trading ahead of research, research reports. Those research reports are, of course, uh, public information, but tips as to what those reports are going to reflect is not public. So in one document from BlackRock, one of the bigger hedge funds, a 2009 document on the firm's analyst surveys is even more explicit, writing to the analysts, we're trying to front-run recommendations. <laughs> it said, referring to trading ahead of analyst recommendations. James Baldenhausen, a BlackRock spokesman, said, quote, the language in the Barclays Global Investors Internal Memos, BlackRock has since acquired uh, Barclays Global Investors, internal memos is sloppy and inaccurate and totally inconsistent, not only with the stated purpose of the survey, but also with the high ethical standards by which BlackRock does business. That sound you're hearing is people taking their money out of the stock market. It's, it's basically as if you are playing poker or blackjack 
And the dealer gets to, uh, well, I guess someone sitting next to you gets to play side bets. And they get to see what the dealer has before you do. That's more or less, I guess, the equivalent. Maybe if I played some other uh, card games, I'd have a better analogy. But that's more or less it. Welcome to the Best the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. By now, we have all been inundated with coverage of the Aurora Theater shooting, both in paying tribute to the victims and injured of this random massive murder, and the fascination we as a society and media display in trying to unpack the reasons why individuals such as James Holmes allegedly commit such violence. Nevertheless, irrespective of Holmes' mental capacity or incapacity during this atrocious act, it was his access to weapons that ultimately made this violent spectacle so deadly and has once again returned the country into a polemic and heated Second Amendment debate surrounding gun control. For years, there has been a tremendous push from the left to address gun control, yet despite mass shooting after mass shooting or accidental fatalities of children from gun-owning households, the Republicans and powerful NRA-backed lobby continue to stymie any comprehensive resolution. So now that this issue is once again making headlines, here is what you can do to mitigate these acts and help end the availability of these senseless weapons. Please go to the Brady Campaign to End Violence at BradyCampaign.org. The Brady Campaign is a nonprofit that devotes itself to creating an America free from gun violence, where all Americans are safe at home, school, work, and in their community. Through their local chapters, they work to reform the gun industry, and using an increasing public awareness about gun control through grassroots activism, they work to pass and enforce federal and state gun laws, regulations, and public policies. Their website also contains a trove of information about gun violence statistics and previous and pending legislation. Likewise, under their Take Action tab, you can find local chapters on the ground or support their many petitions or become a victim advocate. Also, right now you can directly hold President Obama and Mitt Romney accountable by demanding a plan for gun control. Please visit demandaplan.org to sign their petition today. There has been over 56,000 people shot in America this year alone. As the Brady campaign says, we are better than this. Demand change. No matter who is pulling the trigger, a weapon is still a weapon with deadly potential. Let's prevent future senseless tragedies. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the links in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. It is a sad but true fact of American political life that not all scandals are created equal. Some scandals get the benefit of a really awesome name, an awesome name like Watergate. Watergate, man, that was a scandal scandal, right? It had a, a great name. It had a sitting U.S. president. There were burglars, a break-in, hush money, wiretaps. As far as scandals go, Watergate pretty much had it all. It was such a good scandal, actually, that we now append the word gate onto just about anything bad that happens. Like that time a pen exploded in my pocket getting ink all over my pants. Pantsgate. All scandals should be so lucky, but they are not. And sometimes it is the scandals with the really boring names that are the most important. Which brings us to LIBOR. A genuine scandal, a scandal scandal, a big deal, really bad behavior by really powerful people with real effect on not just the world, but perhaps even on you but also a really dull name. So you've heard of LIBOR, right? It's a scandal that you skip past when you see it in the news because you're not interested in going to bed at that very moment. But LIBOR is important, and it's actually kind of interesting. Once I explain to you what this thing was and how it worked, you're going to be kind of shocked we ever permitted the financial system to function in this way. So on tonight's edition of the Ezra Klein Challenge, I'm going to try to explain to you in three minutes or less why you should care about LIBOR. In fact, what LIBOR is, even though it's been cursed with about the worst name in the history of scandals. Now, I, I know what you're thinking here. Isn't the challenge usually two minutes? It is. But I begged for three minutes tonight because, look, the thing's called LIBOR. All right. Do we have the clock? We do have the clock. All right. Ready, set, go. Okay, what is LIBOR? It is the London Interbank Offered Rate. The London Interbank Offered Rate. And even though that sounds really complicated, it's actually super simple. It is pretty much the rate that banks in London charge each other to borrow money. Now, banks are pretty safe. The thing about them, almost the defining feature of them, is they have a lot of money, so they can pay you back. So when they're paying high rates to lend to one another, or charging high rates to lend to one another, it's really bad. It means things have gone so nuts in the financial system that even banks aren't a safe bet to pay back anymore. If the LIBOR rate, though, isn't really low as it normally is, it means everything is fine, situation normal. Banks are confident about getting their money back from one another, as they should be. The rate that banks charge each other in London doesn't sound like it has anything to do with you. But it actually has everything to do with you. Every day when banks here in the U.S. are deciding how much money they're going to charge you for, say, a mortgage, they use LIBOR as like the floor on that rate. They say to themselves, okay, LIBOR is the going rate for a loan with pretty much no risk. So that's where they begin. And then they add your risk on top of LIBOR. They build your rate on top of LIBOR. So if LIBOR is really high, you're going to end up paying more for your mortgage than you would if it was low. 
That's why the scandal that's still breaking is important. If banks were intentionally manipulating LIBOR, then the rate being charged for mortgages here in the U.S. wasn't what it should have been. And whether it was too high and you were getting ripped off, or it was too low and the financial system was riskier than people realized, it's bad. But there is also a second reason you should care about this. You remember, you might recall this whole period during the financial crisis when regulators were trying to figure out if these banks were strong enough to survive. And one of the things they were looking at to figure that out was LIBOR. If LIBOR got too high, it meant the system was on the brink and regulators had to jump in. What the banks were allegedly doing back then was manipulating the LIBOR rate, possibly with the cooperation of certain regulators, to make it often lower than it should have been. Now, why would they do that? so they wouldn't get regulated as hard. If the banking system is in trouble, it needs to be more heavily regulated, maybe even nationalized. So the solution is lie to the regulators, make them think you're more stable than you are. Now, here's, though, the crazy thing about LIBOR. It was totally up to the banks. We just trusted whatever they said, and they were lying. And it seems that a lot of them were lying, that it was an open secret among them that you just lied about LIBOR. And so LIBOR is, in the end, a reminder of something that, by this point, we should really already know. You cannot trust the banks. You cannot trust self-regulation. It isn't going to work. Shocking news. Turns out that the New York Fed, and hence, of course, the Federal Reserve, knew about LIBOR fixing all the way back in 2007-2008. No! Really? Now, we've uh, told you about this before, but now more details have come out. Gee, the Fed having to release these on a Friday. I wonder if it's because they wanted to highlight the story or bury the story as we were going to the weekend. So now here's a uh, call that a Barclays employee had with a New York Fed analyst in April 2008. We know that we're not posting um, an honest LIBOR, and yet we're doing it because um, if we didn't do it, it draws um, unwanted attention to ourselves, on ourselves. So now, of course, LIBOR is uh, the interest rates that the banks, about the top 16 banks, set for how they pay each other, but it winds up affecting the interest rates for all of us. In fact, for $800 trillion worth of securities, etc., it affects almost everything there is, your home mortgage, the amount that the cities pay, etc. So when they fix it to their advantage, oftentimes it is to your disadvantage. Now, here's a Barclays employee telling the New York Fed back in 2008, that's what we did. So how does the New York Fed employee uh, respond? I love this part. Well, you have to accept it, I understand. Uh, despite uh, that it's against what you would like to do, I understand completely. Well, I'm glad you were a check on them. <laughs> In other words, have at it, Hoss. Okay, now it gets better, guys. Um, New York Fed analyst says in April uh, 2008, our contacts at LIBOR contributing banks have indicated a tendency to underreport actual borrowing costs in order to limit the potential for speculation about the institution's liquidity problems, uh, which means they're having liquidity problems, they're a bit panicked about it, they don't want to tell anybody, and we know about it, and here's what we're going to do about it. Nothing! Okay, Tim Geithner, by the way, sends a suggestion over to Barclays. 
hey, you know what, you might want to do these things so you can stop fixing the LIBOR rate to the great disadvantage of many people in the U.S. and across the world. And they're like, oh, well, we'll take it under advisement. And here's what they do with it. Nothing. In fact, a Barclays employee tells the New York Fed analyst that the LIBOR rates are, quote, absolute rubbish. Okay, so it couldn't be any clearer that they fixed the rates and that the Fed knew about it. Uh, all right, guys, what do you think the fallout is going to be? Uh, Tim Geithner, is he going to be gone on Monday or Tuesday? It's kind of interesting that this is coming out right toward the end. But I also think it's funny that Barclays, in all of this reporting, seems to be the only bank that is actually saying, guys, I don't feel so good about this. Like, this <laughs> seems wrong. And everyone's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And then they're the ones that are the first ones to get busted and pay the $450 million fine. No, that's a really interesting point by uh, Lucas, because there's 16 banks involved. They all did, right? But now everybody's piling on Barclays, because Barclays, you can look at it two ways. One, they made the mistake of admitting it first, because... Now everybody's oh, gee, it was oh, J.P. Morgan. No, 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 it wasn't us. So Barclays, son of a bitch is at Barclays. Can you believe that? Mm. Now, the flip side to that is Barclays is doing it because they're thinking, all right, look, we go first. We only have to pay $450 million. Right. You know, the guy who goes last might have to pay a hell of a lot more. The flip side to that is the banks might not even be around by then. We are seeing reports of some court cases coming out, apparently from municipalities in large cities around the country. They're being aggregated into a few large cases, uh, which is good. It's more than I would have expected prior to uh, this week, I would assume. But no talk yet of arrests, no criminal <laughs> <prosecution>. I mean, <laughs> it's millions and millions of dollars. Like, Baltimore got robbed. All these cities around the country got robbed. And we're talking about fines. Right. So they'll lose a day or two of profits at these large banks. So I want to give context in the two important ways here. Now, understand that whenever they fix the rates, if it's lower or it's higher, it hurts a lot of people. It also helps a lot of people. So if you're paying a mortgage and they lower the rates, you're like, well, that's not so bad for me. But if you're the city of Baltimore, exactly. or apparently 75% of the cities in the United States, and you're getting paid based on that interest rate, you know, and that's oversimplifying, but that's the gist of it. Well, then you lost millions of dollars, as John is pointing out. That's why Baltimore is thinking of suing the banks. That's why eventually 75% of the cities might sue the banks. To give you a sense of context on that, Nassau County in Long Island, so one county in Long Island, says they've lost $13 million they did back then because of the fixing of the rates. And that's only for a limited period of time, and we're not quite sure for how long they've been fixing the rates. So, guys, as I look at all that, I think, man, they're going to get sued on both sides of this. Now, it's one thing for the Justice Department to do something, which is never going to happen. The Obama Justice Department has no interest in ever pursuing any bankers, period. So, of course, they're not going to arrest anybody. It's not like the Treasury Department is going to do anything. The head of the Treasury Department is the one that let them fix the rates in the first place, right? It's not like if Mitt Romney wins, his Treasury or Justice Department would do anything. That's a joke, of course. They need a free ride on that no matter what. But they are going to get sued possibly to oblivion. I mean... At the end of the day, after all those lawsuits, is it possible that the banks go, ha, what can I do? Yeah, I cost you the, the world economy billions. I don't know if it's trillions, but when you fix the interest rates, we're talking about a gigantic number. There's no way I can pay. Sad day for everybody involved.
The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. story this week if you have any anti-nausea medication take it now because you may be about to retch into a bucket <laughs> banking update and Andy, last week we talked a little about the libor scandal the manipulation of the key banking rate by a handful of complete assholes or to give them their numerical term multi-millionaires it it turns out that the entire city of baltimore is now launching a lawsuit after suffering huge losses due to the manipulation of LIBOR. So luckily it seems like the victims of the LIBOR scandal are mainly going to be restricted to people, places and things. <laughs> Just nouns, basically. So as long as you don't fall under the noun group, you're going to be walking away from this scandal as happy as a clam. And I remember last week thinking that I was disappointed with myself to think that the behaviour of banks had bottomed out only for the LIBOR scandal to prove I was wrong. And did I learn from that? No, Andy, I did not, because I thought, well, LIBOR will be the depth of it now, at least for a few months. How wrong I was, because just one week later, it has emerged that HSBC Bank has been found to have, among other things, laundered a huge amount of money for Mexican drug cartels. <laughs> Is this the bottom, Andy? Have we at least bottomed out now? Or are we going to find out next week that banks have been kidnapping children and harvesting them for fuel? Because if we did... I would be surprised, sure, but I guess not that surprised anymore. Because if it turned out that Barclays was operating secret orphan fuel factories, it would at least seem morally consistent. <laughs> and also, you know, if it knocked a quarter of a point off uh, my interest payments, yeah, who am I to criticise them, John? I mean, it's a let the market decide. Let the market let the decide. Let the market decide, Andy. Unleash the market. <laughs> She's hungry. Uh, well, as you say, as the old saying goes, the darkest hour is right before the dawn, so could... Could this actually be the exciting new dawn of a new era of morally infused banking? Well, the fact is, it does appear that global mega finance actually really likes being in the darkest hour. It makes them feel mm. all horny. And they've also spent a lot of money de developing an industrial blindfold, so they can just keep it going that extra bit longer. Also, it's worth noting, it wasn't just Mexican drug cartels that were funneling money through HSBC. Uh, HSBC were also apparently channeling money for rogue nations such as Iran and Syria. Apparently, from 2001 to 2007, MSNBC affiliates sent almost 25,000 transactions involving Iran, worth over $19 billion through HBUS and other US accounts, while concealing any link with Iran in 85% of those transactions. It also emerged that they may have been dealing with a Saudi bank known to have channeled money for Al-Qaeda. Now, you see... 
that is going to hit a bit of a nerve here in America, Andy, where <laughs> the relationship with Iran and terrorists has been, at best, strained, and <laughs> dates such as 2001 are, at best, poignant. <laughs> but, I mean, the other side of looking at this, John, is that if we don't let drug cartels and rogue nations and international terror groups use mainstream banking facilities, well, then we're just going to push them underground, John. <laughs> This is all clearly part of a trap to lure them in with promises, of, you know, that, like banks do with new customers. Lure them in with promises of oh. like a free sports hold all or a £20 record token if they open a new student savings account. And bang! Next thing you know, you've got Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's address, phone number, mother's maiden name and the name of his first pet. And then you've got him <laughs> by the balls, John. You've got him <laughs> by his financial balls. Ahmadinejad's Sorry. first pet was a little goldfish called Lucy. You can't say that, Andy. That has just completely ruined all his password encryption now. <laughs> He's a bad man, Andy, but he deserves some kind of internet secrecy. Uh, on Tuesday at a US Senate hearing, the HSBC's uh, head of compliance, David Bagley, resigned in the middle of the questioning. But let's not make that a noble act. Let's not mistake it for a noble act, Andy. Falling on your sword is only noble if you are someone who doesn't fully deserve to have a sword inside your stomach. <laughs> And announcing that he's leaving at a hearing into HSBC's wrongdoing, Andy, is like the captain of the Titanic saying he's going to take a sabbatical from sailing for a while after suddenly hearing a crunching sound outside the ship. <laughs> what was more, after suddenly realising that 90% of his ship is underwater. <laughs> that's, that's true. You're right, I got the timing all wrong there. Uh, Senator Carl Le Levin described... It's, it's after seeing a violinist float past. <laughs> that's right. It's when you're standing in the bar trying to order a drink next to a shot. You know. <laughs> you've left it too long. Senator Carl Levin described HSBC's lack of controls at its US and overseas units as a recipe for trouble. And this is not just any recipe, John. This is a recipe as reliable as my carbonara recipe for guaranteeing that you get exactly the dish you want, bang on the <laughs> banana, every time. I'm describing a lack of controls in this kind of thing as a recipe for trouble. Well, yes, it generally is. That's why we have controls on things. For example, we have controls on strangling people with cheese wire if they annoy you during a snooker match. And controls on the number of babies you're allowed to th try to throw to a, through a basketball hoop, generally set at zero currently in most countries. And controls on whether or not you're, al you're allowed to dip your testicles in a cathedral font during midnight mass and shout, I've got magic sperms now. <laughs> These are the kind of controls that the human being needs, John, because we have an innate human impulse to be a dick. I mean, <laughs> look at the ancient Greek gods. No controls, wandering around doing all kinds of extremely naughty and deeply perverted stuff. It's the same with big banks, John. Watch and learn the banking sector on your barely regulated Mount Olympus of amorality. Watch and learn, because <laughs> you might be able to turn yourself into a shower of rain and hump someone, but it doesn't mean you have to do it. <laughs> the, uh... The chief executive of HSBC's US uh, uh, department, Irene Dorner, who must absolutely love going into work at the moment, <laughs> she, she apologised to the Senate committee, I quote, for the fact that HSBC did not live up to the expectations of our regulators, our customers, our employees and the general public. You see, you got that wrong, Irene. HSBC didn't just live up to everyone's expectations nowadays, they vastly exceeded them. I now am just wired to expect Bank to be due duplicitous crooks, but to be in league with Mexican drug cartels, 
Oh, bravo, HSBC. I don't think anyone saw that coming. And the fact that that is so true is clearly part of the problem. And as always with deep regretting in the mega business world, I think what Irene Dorner probably meant was that she deeply regretted HSBC being found out and made public. And you can be pretty sure, John, in any controversy involving banking ethics, that the financial moral compass is pointing directly at the Cayman Islands. Yes. The Cayman Islands. The islands that put the hay into tax haven. <laughs> and in this case, John, it emerged that HSBC did not even have customer information on 41% of the accounts held with it in the Holy Cayman Islands. Shit. That to me, John, that shows a certain lack of curiosity on behalf of HSBC. Roughly equivalent to being a parent and having a baby and not bothering to find out whether it's a boy or a girl until it's 34 years old, and you have to ask it whether it's very, very pregnant or has just put on a bit of weight in the last nine months. Having, having no customer information whatsoever for 41% of your customers, Andy, is not just a red flag. That is a red flag attached to an alarm bell attached to a dead canary. I just don't know how many more signs you need. The bank has said it's in the process of closing down 20,000 accounts in the Cayman Islands as a result of the investigation. And this is yet another case, John, of a bank trying to shoot the horse after the door has bolted, in the immortal words of the West Indian <laughs> cricket legend Viv Richards. <laughs> Clearly a man with his finger on the global economic pulse. <laughs> That's such a great quote. Uh, clearly, there are big questions also about regulation and oversight, as the report also implicated the US Treasury Department's Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is supposed to police things like money laundering, uh, and uh, they, they were indicted for, not, uh, for failing to step in earlier. Uh, Senator Tom Coburn said that the OCC had acted as, I quote, a lapdog, not a watchdog, by failing to catch HSBC in the act. But again... They're, just, they're not seeing this the right way, Andy. The OCC haven't just been a lapdog. They've been a lap dancer, <laughs> grinding on top of bankers in the hopes that they'll stuff some money into their fiscal G-strings. <laughs> one interesting side note to these banking scandals at the moment, Andy, is that they all have one thing in common. The LIBOR scandal, based in Britain. The HSBC scandal, based in Britain. <laughs> this is... A high-end low point for Britain, Andy. We should be proud of the amounts that we should be ashamed at the moment. Because with the banking scandals, the BP oil disaster and the phone hacking scandal, you could make a very coherent case that British businessmen are the most cartoonishly evil people in the whole world. And you know that the US is going to respond in every way they can, Andy. And you can expect Hollywood to once more make British people the villains in all their movies. Put it this way... Alan Rickman is about to get a lot of job offers. You're so gonna is see John Oliver. <laughs> You're going to see both of us in a lot of movies <laughs> with us twirling our moustaches in a swivel chair with a hairless cat in our lap and a bazooka over our shoulder before Vin Diesel bursts in and kicks both of us in the face. All I'm saying is these scandals have real-world consequences, Andy. And the problem with this, John... Is you know we've got the Olympics now as we record on Friday. The opening ceremony is one week and a few hours away. That the logistical problems that will inevitably arise with the transport around the city are going to be further exacerbated by the fact that the entire city of London has basically become the world's biggest crime scene and is going to be surrounded <laughs> by police tape while they bag and label it and pack it off to forensics. I think I think to get trust back, at least some trust, HSBC are clearly 
going to need to increase their transparency. So when you go to a cash machine in the street and you type the amount of money that you want onto the screen, it should then flash up saying, you'll be charged $3 for this transaction. Would you still like to continue? Uh, yes. That $3 might end up in the hands of a Mexican drug cartel. Would you still like to continue? Uh, I guess, yes. Even though the Mexican drug cartels are routinely murdering law enforcement officials and turning parts of their country into a war zone, still want to continue? Ah, I want to say no, but yes. What about if part of the $3 ended up in Iran? Continue? Yes. Which will be illegal. Continue? Yes. How about Syria, who are, as we speak, murdering their own people in the streets? Continue? Mm, no. Really? Don't you want this money? Yes. Exactly. Shut up, then. Here's your $20. Would you like a receipt to remind you of this conversation? No. Didn't think so. <laughs> Goodbye. I guess in an industry driven by money, therefore, in large parts by human greed or tax havenality, if you will, this behaviour is hardly surprising. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what excuses HSB comes up with, apart from the classic, sorry, my dog ate all of everyone's account details, and what happened? We were busy fixing a broken cash point between 2002 and 2009. Did something go wrong somewhere? And, of course, the more traditional banking excuse of, sorry, you'll have to say that a bit louder, I just don't give a f***. Sometimes things just need to be said Just come on, come on and lead the way Speak up, speak up and be not afraid Everyone, everyone, won't you let me hear you Speak for everything that ever spoke to you Come on, come on and lead the way Speak up, speak up and be not afraid Everyone, everyone, won't you let me hear you Speak for everything that ever spoke to you we were standing in the starlight With my hands around the waist So Sandy Weil, the former head of Citibank, wasn't it? As I recall, former head of Citibank, back in 1999-2000 when, when Gramm-Leach-Bliley came along and said, Yeah, let's blow up Glass-Steagall. I mean, they cut some holes in it back in the 80s during the Reagan administration uh, that had to do with the way that certain commodities or certain types of speculative investments could be made. But they really blew it apart in 99-2000 with, with uh, Graham Leach-Bliley, Phil Graham's masterpiece, as his wife was working for, you know, on the board of Enron. Sandy Weil the banker who arguably was the one of the most responsible for advocate for telling the senators and the members of congress yeah vote for this thing do away with glass-steagall it's been on the books since 1935 we haven't had a bank failure see we don't need it and so it went away and now the banks blew up sandy Weil was on uh, cnbc recently and becky quick was totally freaked out by his answer to the question. Uh, let's, let's actually start out with just what he had to say, clip one here. Here's, here's uh, Sandy Well. He's now retired, but up until 2006, he was the, the executive CEO of, of Citibank. Here he is. So I, think, so I think what we should probably do is go and split up investment banking from banking, have banks be deposit takers, have banks make commercial loans and, and uh, real estate loans. Have banks do something that's not going to risk the taxpayer dollars, that's not going to be too big to fail. 
So what he's talking about here is there's two kinds of banks. There's banks, what he's calling banks, and what typically have been called commercial banks, and what are, what are called investment banks. And used to be, when Glass-Steagall was in place, that commercial banks, the ones that did mortgages and took your checking accounts and your savings accounts and loaned money to local small businesses, that those banks were prevented from participating in the stock market. They couldn't gamble. And so here's Sandy Weil saying, eh, let's, let's put an end to this. Let's separate these two kinds of banks so that the gambling banks can go off and gamble and take their risks, but the bank banks, the ones on which the infrastructure, of this, the economic infrastructure of this country is founded uh, or stands, are not going to go down in flames again. They're not going to have to be bailed out. He just came right out and said it. And uh, clip number two here, Becky Quick just freaks. Right. That's, that's a pretty radical idea, though, the idea of breaking up the investment banks and the banks. Are you suggesting going back and, and, and really breaking these companies up? Uh, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really? Oh, my. And uh, here in clip number three, he explains a little farther. I'm suggesting that they be broken up so that the, the taxpayer will never be at risk. The, the depositors won't be at risk. The leverage of the banks will be something reasonable. The, the leverage of the bank. Just let's let's go back to a safe banking system, please. This is the godfather of the banksters saying this. I mean, there's there's got to be a certain amount of credibility to this. On the other hand, you know, Mitt Romney, clip number nine here, uh, talking about Dodd Frank, which regulates slight. I mean, doesn't return Glass Steagall just slightly he says we're gonna look over your shoulder a little bit make sure you don't blow up the economy here's Mitt Romney's position but, but this bill was was uh, too overreaching and too massive and has contributed to uh, a, a slowdown in lending right right and therefore clip number 10 Mitt Romney says this is what he wants to do I would like, I would like to repeal that right right Meanwhile, Mitt Romney's in, the, in London right now, hanging out with banksters, including banksters from Barclays. Just the whole thing, you, you add it all up, and it's like, this is just so strange. This is so strange. The system got gamed. I mean, the system got gamed big time over the last 30 years. Let's, let's just call it what it is. During the Reagan administration, our tax system got, got gamed so that middle-class people ended up paying most of the taxes in America, the, the largest chunk of, the, of, of the, the cost of running government, and, and big corporations, which used to pay, well, not half, but not even a, more or less a third, but you know, now they're paying less than 10%. And, and rich people got this huge tax cut. I mean, a huge tax cut, from 74% down to 28%. For, I'm talking about seriously rich people like Mitt Romney, you know, people who make 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year doing nothing, which is what Mitt Romney's doing right now. I mean, you know, he's running for president, but he's not being paid for that. Seriously rich people got this huge tax cut. So, first of all, in the 80s, the tax system got gamed. And then, and also, I mean, this really started with Richard Nixon's administration, but over the, over the few decades, our trade system got gamed. So, that the big transnational corporations, uh, you know, now with NAFTA and GAT and 
CAFTA and SHAFTA and all the all these various uh, trade deals. The big corporations are like, hey, you know, we don't need no stinking American workers. We can move our jobs offshore. We can move our manufacturing offshore, and we can keep our money offshore. Some five trillion dollars of it, and not pay any taxes on it. How sweet is that? And we want to build a new factory offshore. Just take it out of that pot. And effectively pay no taxes in the United States. This is what General Electric does. Effectively pay no taxes. ExxonMobil effectively pays no taxes. In fact, they get a tax refund. You and I pay them. Does ExxonMobil pay for the cost of the United States Navy that protects the shipping lanes, that brings the oil that they're drilling offshore and in foreign countries in the Middle East and brings it back to the United States? No, they don't pay for that. They're not suckers. You and I pay for it. We're the suckers. You can th and, and this all goes back to the, uh, to, to, the, to the Reagan administration, the Bush administration. The, the origin of this whole thing, arguably back to the Nixon administration. I mean, the Republicans have been working on this for a long, long time. So the system got gamed. We got screwed. Our trade laws got changed. Then, in 2002... George W. Bush came along and said, hey, let's put, let's put uh, Diebold, whose CEO, Wally O'Dell, in 2004, wrote a letter saying that he was going to deliver Ohio for George W. Bush against John Kerry. Let's put Diebold in charge of our voting. And so in 2002, George W. Bush pushed through the Help America Vote Act to get these voting machines all over the country passing out five and a half, six billion dollars to the various states and counties. So you too can buy voting machines from these private corporations because we're privatizing the vote, didn't you know? And that wasn't enough. So then, you know, it's, well, okay, we privatize the vote. We can get this little redshift in a few states, you know, redshift in Florida, redshift in Ohio, redshift in Pennsylvania. But it wasn't really enough. So now it's, well, let's, let's throw 400,000 people off the voting rolls in just the city of Philadelphia. You know, what the heck? They don't need to vote. 43% of the people in the city don't have one of, the kind, one of the five kinds of ID that you have to legally have to vote in Pennsylvania. The governor, by the way, Tom Corbett, could not identify what those IDs were yesterday when he was asked. He's like, oh, I don't remember what they are. It's driver's license and passport and something else. Right. So you are guilty of voter fraud until you prove yourself innocent by showing your ID. What happened to that? Innocent until proven guilty? No, no, that doesn't work for Republicans. I mean, our voting system's been gamed, our tax system's been gamed, our trade system's been gamed, our business system's been gamed. Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Act. Now it's nothing but big businesses. Small companies are out of business.
you've probably heard the name Sanford Weil, or maybe you've heard Sandy Weil to his friends. Sandy Weil is to Wall Street bankers what, say, Jerry Seinfeld is to sitcoms, or Tony Bennett is to crooners. Even if you don't pay much attention, he's the one you've probably heard of. Sandy Wallet used to run Citibank. He got really, 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 really rich doing it. And today on CNBC, Sandy Wallet said that the United States government should break up the big banks. You know, the big banks like Citi, which he ran. Imagine Jerry Seinfeld saying there should be no more primetime sitcoms, or Tony Bennett saying no more crooning. That's what Sandy Wallet suggested today. Which leads us right into tonight's Ezra Klein Challenge, where I try to explain complicated stuff, especially in the economy, that seems at first glance a little mystifying. Tonight, what the heck they are talking about when they talk about breaking up the big banks. Everyone says it, while says it, everyone hears it, but it doesn't often get explained. So what is breaking up the big banks, how would they do it, and why would we want to? May I have my two minutes, please? Okay? There it is, ready, set. You have heard of all of the big banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Wells Fargo. These names are big, and it means they have as assets a really big percentage of our gross domestic product, trillions and trillions of dollars. But what we're worried about here isn't just that they're big. It is that they're too big, that they are too big to fail, to be precise. When we say a bank is too big to fail, we mean it's got so much money and so many debts to other banks and investors that its failure could bring down other parts of the financial system as well. That is what happened when Lehman and AIG began to go down. When they went down, they owed so much money to everyone else that the very fact of their failure made other banks fail. Banks that were fine the day before were not fine the day after. And here's the thing. The banks are even bigger today than they were then, than they were before the crisis. This graph from Bloomberg Businessweek tells a story. In 06, the five biggest banks had $6 trillion in assets. Today they have $8.5 trillion. That's more than half what the entire U.S. economy produces in a single year. So when folks say they want to break up the big banks, it is because they believe that a series of smaller banks would be able to fail without threatening everyone else. Now, there are a couple of different ways we could actually go about doing that. The government could, for instance, tax the hell out of any bank that is bigger than we wanted it to be. No bank would want to pay such a tax, so no bank could really profitably allow itself to be so big. But then we would have a bunch of smaller banks. The problem there is that even smaller banks can still be too interconnected to fail. They can have so many trading partners and so many bets and so much leverage, financial system can't handle their fall. And then, of course, there's a problem of global banks, which can be huge and can go down. In other words, breaking up the banks, which are called too big to fail, may or may not solve the problem, because a problem isn't so much a too big part, it is the fail part. The challenge is how to keep any of them from failing at all, at least in a way that hurts us.
Commodities traders consciously decided today that half of Africa will have to starve next winter. Always in the past, brokers at Goldman Sachs or wherever unconsciously prepared to respond to international hunger crises with... Did I really kill all those spindly little kids? Or... Honestly, I just thought I was manipulating the price of cornflakes. In condemning millions to death by malnutrition, traders hope their new position will usher in an era of transparency and ever larger private jets. This HowdyLand.com News Bullet was brought to you by Cornflakes. There aren't really any different kinds of cornflakes, just cornflakes. I'm Stan Douglas. I want to share with you a great article that Bill Cohen wrote for Bloomberg uh, to explain how the average guy gets screwed by the bankers. Now, a lot of you will, uh, if you have any dealings with these bankers, will sign uh, arbitration uh, papers, which means that if you get into a dispute, instead of taking them in court, you must go to arbitration. Now, here's a huge problem with that. The arbitration is done by people appointed by those bankers. Now, from time to time, we'll tell you about that, and we'll say, what a ridiculous system. Of course, they're going to skew it in favor of the banks, and then if you don't play ball, you get removed. Well, the reason I love this article is because Bill found an exact situation where that's totally what happened. So it's the case of Robert uh, Postal. He's from uh, Georgia, and uh, he uh, said that uh, Merrill Lynch, which is now part of Bank of America, had not adequately monitored his accounts, that there was a breach of contract and a breach of fiduciary duty against Merrill. And there were three arbitrators in the case, Fred Pinckney, Eileen Gormley, and Daniel Colbert. Now, they have a great deal of experience between them. Eileen, for example, had over 23 years, over 20 years, I should say, years of experience as an arbitrator. They looked at the case. Now, the banks win an overwhelming percentage of these cases golly gee I wonder how that happens but in this case they said no the person who brought this case is absolutely right and they gave him um, $520,000 in damages so now it is at this point that I should tell you that Wall Street gives this institution the financial industry regulatory authority that's this self-regulatory organization one billion dollars so those arbitrators work for FINRA, and Wall Street gives FINRA a billion dollars. So uh, let me show you Fred Pinkney, Eileen Gormley, and Daniel Colbert again. They all work for FINRA. They are their arbitrators. So what happened shortly after they awarded the $520,000 against the banks? Fred Pinkney fired. Huh, interesting. Well, Eileen Gormley also fired. But Daniel Colbert, come on now also fired. What a wild coincidence. After having a long career uh, with FINRA and as arbitrators, and one time that they rule against the banks, well, golly gee, they all happen to get fired. I wonder why that happened. 
Well, we all know why that happened. It's because they get a billion dollars from Wall Street. Of course they're going to rule in favor of Wall Street. And this is how they send a message, not to these guys, but to all the other arbitrators. If you don't do what we implicitly expect you to do, which is to rule in our favor almost every single time, you will get fired. Your kids will not be able to go to college. You won't be able to pay your mortgage. We will fire you and destroy your career. So play ball, and no matter who's right or wrong, always say the banks are right. Now, some of these arbitrators, after they get fired, they say, okay, well, look, I'm going to take my case to the SEC. I've got a whistleblower complaint. Because obviously they're doing this and they're screwing over all these clients that they're supposed to be giving uh, independent arb arbitration to. Well, good luck with that. You know why? Current head of the SEC is Mary Shapiro, who used to be the head of FINRA. In fact, when she left FINRA, they gave her a $9 million exit package. Now, it's one thing to pay her a tremendous amount of money to do whatever the banks tell her to do and not to be fair to the clients at all. It's another thing to get promoted up to the SEC to, so that you make sure that you got one person who's definitely not going to regulate the banks, who's gotten paid a tremendous amount of money already from the banks and has no interest in regulating them. She built her career on not regulating them. Now it's another thing entirely to say, hey, in case that message wasn't clear enough, Here's a $9 million bribe for things you haven't even done, but as an exit package to make sure that when you go over to the SEC, you continue to play ball so that if you get complaints from other FINRA arbitrators, you squash them, you crush them, and you move on. If the banks break SEC rules, much more importantly, oh, hell no, you won't be investigating them. And then shockingly enough, it turns out that the SEC has been incredibly lame in pursuing cases against the top banks. Wow, I wonder why. It couldn't have anything to do with the giant millions of dollars of bribes that they gave to the head of the SEC, could it? Now, I'm sorry, I shouldn't call them bribes. They're perfectly legal. Exit packages. So, you think you're getting a fair hearing if you have to go to arbitration? You think that it's fair for you to give up your rights to go to court and to get an actual independent jury or judge to see it? You think this system isn't rigged against you and in favor of the banks so they make all the money and they crush you in the process? If you think all that, you have no idea what's happening in the United States of America. This is what's happening. calling in response to a, a commenter on uh, the last episode about the rhetoric uh, of uh, saying, you know, we're destroying the planet if we do this or that. And the caller was saying that that's not accurate. Um, the planet will still exist. What we're really talking about is how it affects humans. And um, I do agree that there's a better way to phrase that sentiment. I don't, um, yes, the planet will still exist. What we're talking about is destroying its ability to support life as we know it. Uh, so yes, we could communicate that more efficiently, but I very much object to the idea that um, that the reason not to destroy uh, the beauty that is this eco-web is how it affects 
me and my species. I, I don't think that is the reason. Um, I think we simply don't have the right to do that. I think that EcoWeb deserves to exist without our ruining it for its own reasons. And uh, it has nothing to do, I mean, obviously it has something to do with how it affects me and my human cohort. But I very much uh, feel a spiritual sense of awe towards it. And I think that the other things that live on this planet have as much right to live as we do. And we don't have um, the value of preserving that ecosystem that is this planet in its current phase uh, is not by any means dependent on its benefit to humans. I think that that is a dominionist uh, carryover that we need to, to let go in our thinking. It is not here for us. But how it affects humans is, is relevant because we happen to be them, but it's not the reason not to destroy something beautiful. So I just wanted to say that. Um, love the show. Listen all the time. It's my favorite podcast. Keep up the good work and have a great day. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Nathaniel from Raleigh. You asked for an argument to be made for the benefits of voting for a third-party candidate over Obama as a tool for shaping progressive policy. This is something I have been struggling with as well, and this is the position I have come to. Obviously, voting for a socialist or a Green Party isn't going to move anything. Nothing will happen. In fact, if progressive media does what Travis from Missouri suggests and just gives more airplay to third-party candidates, the chances are greater that Obama will lose. A Romney election is obviously not the goal here. The goal is to send a message to the Democratic Party. The goal is to show that more progressive candidates might truly be popular and viable if given a chance. As things are now, we are all fairly disappointed with Obama and the Democrats, but we are constantly forced to conclude that at least he's better than the other guy. I'm sure this calculation comes into their strategy, and they know they don't actually need to do very much for the progressive base to make their candidate the only real choice, no matter how distasteful it may be. If they see a large enough number of the reliable base abandon ship, it might cause them to reconsider their position on the, on the political spectrum. The argument could be made that maybe we should save this fight for an election with less at stake, but I don't think that such an election would ever happen. It's a gamble, but if we never take that leap, we'll continue to get one disappointing candidate after another. Thanks for all you do. Love the show. Hi, I wanted to respond to the need to vote for progressive third parties because I think both the Democrats have proved time and time again, as well as the Republicans, that they are in the pockets of big corporations and those are the interests they continue to represent. And until we, um, until that changes, I think it's really important that we vote for progressive third parties to put the pressure on the two parties and really vote in our own interests, not the corporations. And that's why I'm supporting the Freedom Socialist Party candidates, Stephen Durham and Christina Lopez. Um, and if you want to find out about their platform as socialist feminist candidates who represent working class candidates, you can go to votesocialism.com. Um, so that's what I do because I have not voted for a Democrat since Clinton when he sold out by voting for passing NAFTA as well as the welfare reform that lost um, a lot of people even more destitute. So, all right, thanks.
Hey, Jay, this is Colin from Cleveland, Ohio. I was just calling in regard to uh, Travis from Missouri talking about uh, voting for third parties. And, uh, again, it's probably beating a dead horse. And uh, I myself consider myself very progressive, yet I am voting for Obama. And uh, he's nowhere near as progressive as I want. But I just don't see how people, if a mass group of people voted for a third party, I really don't think it would accomplish anything but splitting the vote on the left and giving the right wing more po- more powerful and more representative voting base. Um, it would be sending a message to maybe the other people on the left who lost, but I still don't think that they're re- really ready to give up their money ties to corporations and Wall Street and get on board with anything progressive. So it, it's like you said, it's kind of like the dream world where a Green Party person would get elected. As much as I would love to see it happen, I just don't really see uh, any kind of real third party, left wing or right wing, taking a real foot in this country um, with the way the two party system is set up. I mean, I mean, really, blue or red, they're all really just, you know, the same, just they get their money from the same people. They just pander to a few different social uh, needs. But Anyway, I just want to throw my two cents in. Like I said, in the perfect world, uh, I think every candidate would just have to run as an independent itself. You know, forget parties, forget money, get it all out of politics, and then just start voting for the actual person. But who the hell knows how we're ever going to get that to happen. Anyway, I love the show. Good luck with your move. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I think that my position on the whole voting issue comes, you know, not so much from a philosophical discussion on which way you vote and, and what impact that has, but more from the idea that I don't believe that the problems we have with the voting system can be fixed through voting. You know, I think that they can be fixed through outside campaigns like Occupy Wall Street, like the amendment uh, to the Constitution, trying to repeal Citizens United, uh, campaign finance reform efforts. Uh, there's actually a state by state campaign going on right now that would create sort of a de facto uh, popular vote for you know national presidential elections so that it would actually matter. You know, even if you're not in a swing state, your vote would actually count. Uh, That, I think, is important. Campaigns for instant runoff voting would be incredibly influential, and it would completely change the discussion on third-party voting. If you don't know, instant runoff voting is where you can actually vote for multiple people on a single ballot and rank them. So you could say, I'd like to vote for Ralph Nader, but if Ralph Nader doesn't get 50% of the vote, then my second choice is Al Gore, that sort of thing. So my basic idea with the current totally messed up, broken system that only allows one of two parties to win almost any election at any level of government is that Democrats are like, you know, very small, weak patches that we're trying to put on a very, very leaky dam, but they are better than the alternative as, as it stands. And I think that the system itself is so fundamentally broken that the idea that Democrats can be influenced to become more progressive by voting 
more progressively in in terms of voting for third parties, you know, green or otherwise uh, that are to the left of of the Democrats is actually a flawed premise because politicians these days don't react to voters in the way that they used to because the, the system has become so corrupted with money that they they basically can't afford to care as much about the voters because they have to get the money to influence voters through commercials and the like. And so only under this very particular set of current circumstances do I come to the conclusion that voting for Democrats is the lesser of two evils and the relatively appropriate thing to do at the moment while simultaneously very, very strongly and passionately and fervently working for these outside campaigns that are attempting to fundamentally alter the way voting works and influence peddling works in the country so as to fundamentally alter the types of politicians we are capable of electing. So those are my thoughts on that. If you have differing opinions, which I know you do, go ahead and call those in. The number again, 206-202-3410. That's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation to the show. That financial support is absolutely how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it or by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. All of that can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fond farewell to a friend